0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Ruben Uncut. I'm your host, Ruben. Obviously, you know what? I didn't really know what I wanted to do for this podcast today, you know, because. Life is fucking hard, and you sit around and you're like, God, what am I gonna talk about? And you come through some ideas, and you're like, Nah, I want to read a little bit more about that before I go on the line and make myself look like an idiot. Or sometimes you think about you want to rant about something, but at the same time, you're like, God, damn, I'm so tired of thinking about the real, about everything going on in the world today. I'm fucking tired, tired. I tell you, worn down. And then you get your personal life coming in there, giving the one, two punches, smacking you around, telling you to make it a sandwich. You're like, life, Jesus, calm down. I didn't realize that we didn't realize life hated the sound of me chewing. Anyways, the point is, I didn't know what I wanted to do today. So, in the absence of anything terribly creative on my part, I'm going to talk to you about my favorite Wikipedia page. The Wikipedia page. I'm going to read it to you and I'm going to, we're going to talk about it. Uh, Jack, the Wikipedia page for Jack Parsons. Now let me read you the, the side part here. Parsons. Parsons born Marvel Whiteside Parsons. Yes, his original name was Marvel. And somebody changed it, and he changed it to Jack at some point. And he was born October 2nd, 1914 in Los Angeles, California. Died June 17th, 1952, age 37, Pasadena, California. Cause of death, explosion. Resting place, the Mojave Desert. Nationality, American. Other names, John Whiteside Parsons. Which, of course, Jack is short for John. Alma mater. Pasadena Junior College, Stanford University, University of Southern California. No degree. Which, that makes it sound like he did not finish that one. Uh, Occupation, rocket engineer, scientist, businessman, occultist. Yeah. Sorry, you get the picture? All right. Organization, jet organizations he was connected to: Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the California Institute of Technology, Aerojet Engineering Corporation, North American Aviation, and the Hughes Aircraft Company. Spouses: Helen Parson Smith, Nee Northrop. They were married from 1935 to 1946 when they were divorced. And then he married Marjorie Cameron from, 1950, from 1946 to his death in 1952. But we're going to get in some more details about that. Because let's learn who the fuck is Marvel Whiteside Parsons, a.k.a. Jack Parsons. So Buckle up. This is going to be a fucking ride all right as we have just read in the side part which is almost redundant now that i think about it but i wanted to give you a fucking taste of what we were in for here some minor spoilers possibly john whiteside parsons born marvel whiteside parsons october 2nd 1914 june 17th 1952 was an american rocket engineer chemist, and thelemite occultist associated with the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. Parsons was one of the principal founders of both the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. He invented the first rocket engine to use a castable composite rocket propellant and pioneered the advancement of both liquid fuel and solid fuel rockets. Born in Los Angeles, Parsons was raised by a wealthy family in Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena. Inspired by science fiction literature, he developed an interest in rocketry in his childhood, and in 1928 began amateur rocket experiments with school friend Edward S. Foreman. He dropped out of Pasadena Junior College and Stanford University due to financial difficulties during the Great Depression. And in 1934, he united with foreman and graduate Frank Molina to form the Caltech-affiliated Guggenheim Aeronautic Laboratory, or GALCITE. Rocket Research Group, supported by GALCITE chairman Theodore von Karman. In 1939, the Galsite, Galclit no there's no L there—Gal, group gained funding from the National Academy of Science (NAS) to work on jet-assisted takeoff, or JATO. JATO? Who knows? For the U.S. military, after the U.S. entered World War II, they founded the Aerojet. They founded Aerojet in 1942 to develop and sell Jaddo technology. The Gleiset Group became JPL in 1943. I, I promise this will get more exciting. Following some, of, following some brief involvement with Marxism, see, that's spicy. In 1939, Parsons converted to Thelema, the new religious movement founded by the English occultist Alistair Crowley together with his wife Helen Northrup Parsons joined the Agape Lodge Agape Agape A G A P E Lodge the California the Californian branch of the Thelemite Ordo Temple Tem, I'm sorry Ordo Templi Orientis or OTO in 1941 at Crowley's Bennett Bidding that's yes Alistair Crowley parsons replaced wilfred talbot smith as its leader in 1942 and ran the lot hold on hold on is there is there a more detail you know what fuck this i'm i might cut that whole part out because you deserve to hear the detailed version of this that shit i was reading you that's like the abridged here we go let's rock it hardcore for jack parsons biography early life 1914 to 1934 Marvel Whiteside Parsons was born October, I feel like I'm in, I feel like I'm in one of those movies, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day right now, October, October 2nd, 1914 at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. His parents, Ruth Virginia Whiteside, born born 1893, died 1952, and Marvel H. Parsons, oh, he was a junior, two people had that goddamn name fascinating his father of course lived from 1894 to 1947 had moved to california from massachusetts the previous year purchasing a house on scarf street in downtown los angeles their son was his father's namesake but was known in the household as jack the marriage broke down soon after jack's birth when ruth discovered that his father had made numerous visits to a prostitute And she filed for divorce in March 1915. Jack's father returned to Massachusetts after being publicly exposed as an adulterer. Big deal back then, by the way. And I lost my place. Oh, there we go. With Ruth forbidding him from having any contact with Jack. His father later joined the armed forces, reaching the rank of major, and married a woman with whom he had a son, Charles, a half-brother. Jack only met once. How sad. Although she retained her hu- ex-husband's surname, Ruth started calling her son John. But many friends throughout his life knew him as Jack. Ruth's parents, Walter and Carrie Whiteside, moved to California to be with Jack and their daughter, using their wealth to buy upscale, an upscale house on Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena, known locally as Millionaire's Mile where they could live together. Lucky bastard. Jack was surrounded by domestic servants. Having few friends, he lived in solidarity. Pfft, I'm sorry. He lived in a solid. He lived a solitary, not solitary, solitary l- childhood and spent much time reading. He took particular interest in works of mythology, Arthurian legend, and the Arabian Nights. Through the works of Jules Verne, he became interested in science fiction and a keen reader of pulp magazines like Amazing Stories, which led to his early interest in rocketry. Hear that, kids? Read all the things your parents tell you will rot your brains you'll become a rocket scientist. Science fiction for the win. At age 12, Parsons began attending Washington Junior High School, where he performed poorly, with biographer George Pendle which biographer George Pendle attributed to his undiagnosed dyslexia. Whew, it's a good thing no one found out he might have been locked up for that at that time. And was bullied for his upper-class status and perceived effeminacy. Although unpopular, he formed a strong friendship with Edward Foreman, a boy from a poor working-class family who defended him from bullies and shared his interest in science fiction and rocketry. Wait a minute, am I reading the... Is this is this about Reed Richards and the thing? What am I reading here? And well and with the well read Parsons enthralling foreman with his literary prowess, in nineteen twenty eight the pair adopting the Latin motto Per aspera ad astra through hardship to the stars, which is what that means, began engaging in homemade gunpowder based rocket experiments in the nearby Aroyo, Arroyo Ar- Seco Canyon—I'm probably butchering that—as well as the Parsons family's back garden, which he left, which left it pockmarked marked with craters and explosive test failures. There goes your property values, everybody. They incorporated commonly available fireworks such as cherry bombs into their rockets and Parsons suggested using glue as a binding agent to increase the rocket's fuel stability. This research became more complex when they began using materials such as aluminum foil to make the gunpowder easier to cast. Parsons had also begun to investigate occultism and performed a ritual intended to invoke the devil into his bedroom. He worried that the... The invocation was successful and was frightened into ceasing these activities because he was a little bitch at that time. In 1929, he began attending John Muir? God damn. What language is this shit in? English? John Muir High School, where he maintained an insular friendship with Foreman and was a keen participant in fencing and archery. After he received poor school results, Parsons' mother sent him away to study at the Brown Military Academy for Boys, a private boarding school in San Diego. But he was also expelled for blowing up the toilets. Yep, he's the guy who invented that. Every movie you've ever seen that in, you can thank Jack Parsons. A legendary frontiersman in the frontier of blowing up toilets to get evicted from... From high schools. Expelled, I think. it's the, Expelled. Expelled, not evicted. He could have been living there. I don't know. The Parsons family spent mid-1929 touring Europe before... Re- fucking rich people? Before returning to Pasadena, where they moved into a house on San Rafael Avenue. With the onset of the Great Depression, their fortune began to dwindle. And in July of 1931, Jack's grandfather, Walter, died. Selling meth. I'm kidding. That's the joke about Walter White. Move along. Parsons began studying at the privately run university school, a liberal institution that took an unconventional approach to teaching. He flourished academically, becoming editor of the school newspaper. Not bad for a dyslexic. El Universitano. And winning an award for literary excellence. Teachers who had trained at the nearby California Institute of Technology. Caltech, honed his attention on the the study of chemistry. And with the family's financial difficulties deepening, Parsons began working on weekends and school holidays at the Hercules Powder Company, where he learned more about explosives and their potential in rocket propulsion. He and Foreman continued to independently explore the subject in their spare time, building and testing different rockets, sometime with materials that Parsons had stolen from work. Don't let anyone ever tell you, you didn't, You can't get somewhere from robbing your workplace. Parsons soon constructed a solid fuel rocket engine and with Foreman corresponded with pioneer, and with Foreman corresponded with pioneer rocket engineers, including Robert H. Goddard, Herman Oberth, Constantine, Solakovsky, Wiley Lay, and Werner von Braun. Parsons and von Braun had hours of telephone conversations about rocketry in their respective countries as well as their own research. Parsons graduated from university school in 1933 and moved with his mother and grandfather to a modest house on St. John Avenue where he continued to pursue his interest in literature and poetry. He enrolled in Pasadena Junior College with the hope of earning an associate's degree in physics and chemistry. But he dropped out after one term because of his financial situation and took up permanent employment at the Hercules Powder Company. His employers then sent him to work at the manufacturing plant in Hercules, California on San Francisco Bay, where he earned a relatively high monthly wage of $100. I'm going to read that one again for you. Where he he earned a relatively high monthly wage of $100. My, how the times have changed. He was plagued by headaches caused by exposure to nitroglycerin. He saved money in hopes of continuing his academic studies and began a degree in chemistry at Stanford University. But he found the tuition unaffordable and returned to Pasadena. See, even back then, paying for college sucked ass. Now we move on to Galsight Rocket Research Group and the Canetti Trial. This takes place between 1934 and 1938. In hopes of gaining access to the state-of-the-art resources of Caltech for their rocketry research parson and foreman attended a lecture on the work of austrian rocket engineer eugene sanger and hypothetical above stratospheric aircraft by the institute william boley boley not sure a phd student specializing in rocket-powered aircraft and an and approached him to express their interest in designing a liquid-fuel rocket motor. Boley redirected them to another Ph.D. student, Frank Molina. Side note, Boley, what the fuck were you thinking? Maybe if you had taken them up on their offer, you would have a Wikipedia entry, which you don't. That's why you're highlighted in red, instead of blue like everyone else. Page does not exist. Where was I? Yes. All right. Anyways. Frank Molina, a mathematician and mechanical engineer, writing a thesis on rocket propulsion who shared their interest and soon befriended them. Parsons Foreman and Molina applied for funding from Caltech together. They did not mention that their ultimate objective was to develop rockets for space exploration. Realizing that most of the scientific establishment then considered such ideas science fiction. Suck it, academia. Caltech's Clark Blanchard Millikan immediately rebuffed them but Molina's doctoral advisor Theodor von Karman saw more promise in their proposal and agreed to allow them to operate under the auspices the auspices the auspices of the University's Guggenheim Aeronautic Laboratory Gaussite naming themselves the Gaussite Rocket Research Group which is hell of a mouthful, they gained access to the Caltech specialist equipment. Though the e- economics of the Great Depression left Von Braun unable to finance them. Goddamn Great Depression. The trio focused their distinct skills on collaborative rocket development. Parsons was the chemist, Foreman the machinist, and Molina the technical theori- theori- theoretician. Theoretician? Melina wrote in 1968 that the self-educated Parsons, that's right, didn't have a formal degree, bitches, lacked the discipline of a formal, of a formal higher education, but had an uninhibited and fruitful imagination. Let's hear it for the imaginative bitches. Parsons and Foreman, who, as a dis- as described by Jeffrey A. Landis, were eager to try whatever idea happened to spring to mind. Contrast with Molina, who insisted on scientific discipline as informed by von Karman. Landis writes that their creativity kept Molina focused towards building actual rocket engines, not just solving equations on paper. Sharing socialist values, they operated on an egalitarian basis. Molina taught the others about scientific procedure, and they taught him about practical elements of rocketry. The often socialized, they often socialized, smoking marijuana and drinking, while Molina and Parsons set about writing semi-autobiographical science fiction screenplay they planned to pitch to Hollywood with strong anti-capitalist and pacifist themes. Ah, college, some things never change. Everybody be smoking the weed. Parsons met Helen Northrop at a local church dance and proposed marriage in July 1934. Ah, everyone meeting nice Jewish boys at church. Wait, what? She accepted and they were married in April 1935 at the Little Church of the Flowers in Forest Lawn Memorial Park, Glendale, before undertaking brief honeymoon in San Diego. It was the Great Depression, people. They were poor as hell. Wait, is the Great Depression still going on in 1934? I don't know, I'm not looking it up. They moved into... They moved into a house on South Terrace Drive, Pasadena, while Parsons got a job at the explosives manufacturer, Halifax Powder Company Facilities in Sargas. Much to Helen's dismay, Parsons spent most of his wages funding the Gaussite Rocket Research Group, which is... This is not not what you hope for when you're a wife. For extra money, he manufactured nitroglycerin in their home, which, holy shit, constructing a laboratory on their front porch. At one point, he pawned Helen's engagement ring, and he often asked her family for loans. Whoo! Poor ass. Poor ass dude. I, I, I hear you, man. That's... It's rough. I haven't asked any family for loans, but... Molina recounted that Parsons and Foreman were not too pleased with the austere program that did not include at least the launching of model rockets. But the group reached the consensus of developing a working static rocket motor before embarking on more complex research. They contacted liquid fuel rocket pioneer Robert H. Goddard and he invited Molina to his facility in Roswell, New Mexico. But he was not interested in cooperating. Reticent about sharing his research, and having been subjected to widespread derision for his work in rocketry, they were instead joined by Caltech graduate student Apollo M.O. Amo Smith. I'm beginning to think that maybe some rockets were named after this man. Carlos C. Wood, no Wikipedia page for him. Mark Mayor Mills, what fucking country? It's probably from Ireland. And that's—I should probably know how to say that. Fred S. Miller, no Wikipedia page. William C. Rocket William C. Rockefeller, no Wikipedia page. And Rudolph is that Scott or That's Probably Scott. Scott's pickup truck transported their equipment. Their first liquid fuel motor test took place near the Devil's Gate Dam. You know, in case it went wrong, they wanted to go really wrong. In, oh God, it's this word again, Arroyo Seco on Halloween 1939. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it on Halloween, guys. Yeah, fuck it. Let's make it scary as shit. (laughs) Parsons biographer John Carter described the layout of the contraption as showing... Oxygen flowing from one side with methyl alcohol. The fuel nitrogen flowing from the other side. Water cooled the rocket during burn. Thrust pulled down a spring which measured force. The deflection of the spring measured the force applied to it. A small diamond tip on the apparatus scratched a glass plate to mark the furthest point of deflection. The rocket mount were protected by sandbags. With the tanks and the experimenters well away from it, three attempts to fire the rocket fail. On the fourth, the oxygen line accidentally ignited and perilously am per, Sorry, perilously. Excuse me. Billowed perilously billowed fire at the group, but they viewed this experience as formative. They continued their experiments throughout the last quarter of 1936. After the final test was successfully completed in January 1937, von Karman agreed that they could perform future experiments at an exclusive rocket testing facility on campus. Thank God. In April 1937, Caltech mathematician Quinn... Oh God, why? Quion... Kwa, 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 I apologize to whatever Asian country this name is from. Quan Shu Shu Sh- I don't know how to pronounce an X in an Asian language. okay, anyways, join the group several several months later, weld Arnold, a weld Arnold. beg your pardon there, Arnold. A Caltech laboratory assistant who worked as the group's official photographer also joined. The main reason for Arnold's appointment to this position was his provision of donation to the group on behalf of an anonymous benefactor, the Illuminati. I'm kidding, it doesn't say that. They became well known on campus as the Suicide Squad. My God, their influence is insane! For the dangerous nature of some of their experiments and attracted attention from the local press, Parsons himself gained further media publicity when he appeared as an expert explosives witness in a trial of Captain Earl... K- Earl Kinetti? Kinett I'm going to go with Kinet the head of police intelligence in Los Angeles, who was accused of conspiring to set a car bomb in the attempted murder of private investigator Harry Raymond, a former LAPD detective who was fired after whistleblowing against police corruption. You heard it here, people. The police have always had a problem, and we have not fixed it. Where was I? When Kinnett was convicted largely on Parson's testimony, which included his forensics rec- reconstruction of the car bomb and its explosion, his identity as an expert scientist in the public eye was established despite his lack of university education. While working at Caltech, Parson's was admitted to even admitted to evening courses, admitted to evening courses in chemistry at the University of Southern California. But distracted by his Gaussite workload, he attended sporadically and received unexceptional grades. <clears throat> you heard it here, for everyone. Just like now, back then, being famous was more important than being educated. Welcome to America. Please buy a t-shirt. By early 1938, the group had made their static rocket motor which originally burned for three seconds, run for over a minute. In May that year, Parsons was invited by Forrest J. Ackerman to lecture on his rocketry work at chapter number four of the Los Angeles Science Fiction League. Yes, Los Angeles Science Fiction League. Although he never joined the society, he occasionally attended their talks, on one occasion conversing with a teenage Ray Bradbury. Another scientist to become involved at site Project was Sidney Weinbaum, no Wikipedia page, a Jewish refugee from Europe who was a vocal Marxist. He led Parsons, Molina, and Quan, I'm best guess, I, I deeply apologize if it's wrong, in their creation of a large, largely secretive communist discussion group at Caltech, which became known as Professional Unit One Two Two or One Hundred Twenty Two—I don't know which way they said it—of the Pasadena Communist Party. Although Parsons subscribed to the Daily, to the People's Daily World, and joined the American Civil Liberties Union (ACLU), he refused to join the American Communist Party causing a break in his and Weinbaum's friendship. This couple, with the need to focus on paid employment, led to the disintegration of much of the rocket research group, leaving its only three founding members by late 1938. The next chapter is Embracing Thalema, Advancing Giotto, and the foundi- and Foundation of Aerojet. These These events take place between 1939 and 1942. In January 1939, John and Francis Baxter, a brother and sister who had befriended Jack and Helen Parsons, took Jack to the Church of the Lemma on Winona Boulevard, Hollywood, where he witnessed the performances of the Gnostic Mass. Celebrants of the church had included Hollywood actor John Carradine and gay rights activist Harry Hay. Parsons was intrigued, having already heard of of Thelema's founder and outer head of the Ordo Templi Orentis O.T.O., Alistair Crowley. After reading a copy of Crowley's text, Knox on Pax, which sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, I'm not going to lie, but it was published in 1907, Parsons was introduced to leading members Regina Call, no Wikipedia page, Jane Wolfe, and Wilfred Talbot Smith at the Mass. Feeling both repulsion and attraction for Smith, Parsons continued to sporadically attend the church's events for a year. He continued to read Crowley's works, which increasingly interested him and encouraged Helen to read them. Parsons came to believe in the reality of Thelemic magic as a force that could be explained through quantum physics. He tried to interest his friends and acquaintances in Thelema, taking science fiction writer Jack Williamson and Cleve Cartmill to a performance of the Gnostic mass. Although they were unimpressed, Parsons was more successful with grady louis McMurdy, a young Caltech student he had befriended, as well as McMurdy's fiancée, Claire Palmer, and Helen's sister, Sarah Betty Northrup. Jack and Helen were initiated into the Agape Lodge, the renamed Church of Thelema, in February 1941. Parsons adopted the Thelemic motto of Thelema Ab. Ob- Okay, hold on. We're gonna we're gonna try this. We're gonna we're gonna try this. Okay, here we go. Thelemic motto of Thalemma Atentium Proedio Amoris Nuptia, a Latin mistranslation of the establishment of Thelema through the rituals of love. The initial it- The initials uh, of this motto spelled out topan or topan. Topan? Topan? Oh, they're going to explain in the next line. Also serving as the declaration to pan. I had it wrong each time. All right. Commenting on Parsons' errors of translation in jest, Crowley said that the motto which you mention is couched in a language beyond my powers of understanding. Oh, Alistair Crowley, you sassy bitch. Parsons also adopted the Thelemic Frater, whatever that means, Tupan, with Tupan represented Kabbalistic numerology as 210, the name with which he frequently signed letters to occult associates, while Helen became known as Going to try this, okay. Soror, Soror Grimaud. Best guess. Smith wrote to Crowley saying that Parsons was a really excellent man. He has an excellent mind and much better intellect than myself. JP is going to be very valuable. Wolf wrote to German OTO representative Karl Germer that Parsons was. An A-1 man, Crowley-esque in attainment as a matter of fact. A mooted Parsons as a potential successor to Crowley as outer head of the order. Crowley concurred with such assessments, informing Smith that Parsons is the most valued mem- Is the most valued member of the whole order, with no exception. I'm a sassy bitch. All right. At Von Karman's suggestion, Frank Melina approached the National Academy of Science, NAS, Committee on Army Air Corps Research to request funding for research into what they referred to as jet propulsion, a term chosen to avoid stigma attached to rocketry. The military were interested in jet propulsion as a means of getting aircraft quickly airborne, where there was insufficient room for a full-length runway, and gave the Rocket Research Group $1,000 to put together the proposal on feasibility of jet-assisted takeoff, JATO, by June 1939, making Parsons et al. the first U.S. government-sanctioned rocket research group Imagine that, $1,000 used to get you a fucking rocket research group. Man, now it could get you like a TV. Since their formation in 1934, they had also formed experiments involving model, black powder, motor propelled, multi-stage rockets, It's a mouthful, or also referred to as AIAA. Parsons reported that these rockets reaching exhaust velocities of 4,875 miles per hour, thereby demonstrating the potential of solid fuel to be more effective than liquid types primarily preferred by researchers such as Goddard. In light of this progress, Caltech and Galsite, Galsite, whatever, group receives an additional $10,000 rocketry research grant from the AIAA. Oh my god, did I miss? Did I accidentally... Okay, just, just to make that clear, I may have misread this part. In a research paper submitted to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronauts, that's what AIAA stands for. I don't know why I'm paranoid that I misread that. I gotta get a different recording system so that I can run things back, because my current recording system does not allow for that. If you know a good, incredibly free, <laughs> extremely easy to use, audio recording program, please hit me up. All right. All right. Although a quarter of their funding went to repairing damage to Caltech buildings caused by their experiments in June 1940, they submitted a report to the NAS in which they showed the feasibility of the project for the development of JATO. They requested $100,000 to continue. They received $22,000. Grant money. Works basically the same now as it did then. You need how much? Well, how about I give you a shoe? What? Fuck off. Now known as Galsite project number one, They continued to be ostracized by other Celtic scientists who grew increasingly irritated by their accidents and noise pollution and were forced to relocate their experiments back to the Aroyo Seco at a site with uninvited, corrugated, oh, sorry, unventilated, corrugated iron sheds that served as both research facilities and administrative offices. It was here that JPL would be founded. Parsons and Foreman's rocket experiments were the cover story of the August 1940 edition of Popular Mechanics, in which their pair, in which the pair discussed the prospect of rockets being able to ascend above Earth's atmosphere and orbit around it for research purposes, as well as, Reaching the moon. For the Jato Project, they were joined by Caltech mathematician Martin Summerfield and 18 workers supplied by the Works Progress Administration. Former colleagues like Quan were prevented from returning to the project by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who ensured the secrecy of the operations and restricted the involvement of foreign nationals and political extremists. The FBI was satisfied that Parsons was not a Marxist, but were concerned when Thelemite friend Paul Seckler used Parsons' gun in a drunken car hijacking, for which Seckler was imprisoned in San Quentin State Prison for two years. Englishman George Emerson replaced Arnold as the group's official photographer. Damn. Damn, Seckler, you wouldn't... use Parsons' gun to... In a drunken carjacking? You fucking rocket scientists are out of their goddamn minds. The group's aim was to find replacements for black powder rocket motors. Units consisting of charcoal, sulfur, and potassium nitrate with, with binding agent. With a binding agent. The mixture was unstable, and there were frequent explosions damaging military aircraft. The solid Jato fuel invented by Parsons consisted of, all right, amide, cornstarch, and and ammonium nitrate bound together in the Jato unit with glue and blotting paper. I don't know enough about science to know how out there that is. It was codenamed GalSite 27 implying the previous inventions of 26 new fuels. The first Jato test using the anurko urku plane Urkoop? urku Urku? Yeah. Took place in late July 1941. Though they aided propulsion, the units frequently exploded and damaged the aircraft. Parsons theorized that this was because the ammonium nitrate became dangerously combustible following overnight storage, during which temperatures and consistencies change had resulted in chemical imbalance. Parsons and Molina accordingly devised a method in which they would fill the Jatos with the fuel in early mornings, shortly before the tests, enduring sleep deprivation to do so. On august twenty first, nineteen forty one, Navy Captain Homer J. Baushi Jr. Homer J, interesting, watched by Clark Millig Millikan and Willm- William F. Durand, piloted the Jato equipped Ercoup at March Air Wait, at March. Oh, March Air Force Base in Merino Valley, California. It proved a success and reduced takeoff distance by 30%. But one of the JATOs partially exploded. Over the following weeks, 62 further tests took place, and the NAS, should I be pronouncing that NAS? I don't know, increased their grant to $125,000. Finally, you got. During a series of static experiments, an exploding JATO did significant damage to the rear fuselage of an aircoop. One observer optimistically noted that at least it wasn't a big hole, but necessary repairs delayed their efforts. The military ordered a test flight using liquid rather than solid fuel in early 1942 upon the unit's Upon the United States' entry into the Second World War in December 1941, the group realized they could be drafted directly into military service if they failed to provide viable JATO technology for the military. Informed by their left-wing politics, aiding the war effort against Nazi Germany and the Axis powers was as much of a moral vocation to Parsons, Foreman and Molina as it was a practical one. Parsons-Summerfield and the galsite workers focused on the task and found success with combination of gasoline with red fuming nitric acid as its oxidizer. The latter, suggested by Parsons, was an effective substitute for liquid oxygen. The testing of this fuel resulted in another calamity when the testing rocket motor exploded. The fire containing iron, containing containing iron shed fragments and shrapnel, inexplicably left the experimenters unscathed. Melina solved the problem by replacing the gasoline with aniline. I almost want to pronounce that, pronounce that aniline. <laughs> but it is with an I. Aniline! Alright. <laughs> Resulting in a success... T- and a successful test launch at JATO, resulting in a successful test launch of a JATO-equipped A-20A plane at Maroc Auxiliary Airfield in the Mo- Mojave Desert. It provided five times more thrust than Galsight-27, and again reduced takeoff distance by 30%. Molina wrote to his parents, we now have something that really works, and we should be able to help give the fascists hell. The group then agreed to produce and sell 60 Giotto engines to the United States Air Army's Corps. United States Army Air Corps. Nailed it. To do so, they formed the Aerojet Engineering Corporation in March 1942, in which Parsons, foreman, mul- Molina, Von Karman, and Summerfield each invested $250, opening their offices on Colorado Boulevard and bringing in Ammo Smith as their engineer. Andrew G. Haley was recruited by Von Karman as their lawyer and treasurer. Although Aerojet was a for-profit operation that provided technology for military means, the Founders' mentality was rooted in the ideal of using rockets for peaceful space exploration. As Haley recounted Von Karman's requesting, We will make the rockets. You must make the cooperation and obtain the money. Later on, you will have seen that we all behave well in the outer space. I don't know what I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. I went like started out trying to go German, it went Italian. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. Despite these successes, Parsons, the project engineer of Aerojet Solid Fuel Department, remained motivated to address the malfunctions observed during the ERCOOP tests. In June 1942, assisted by Mills and Miller, he focused his attention on developing an effective method of restricted burning when using solid rocket fuel. As the military demanded, JATOs that could provide over 100 pounds of thrust without any risk of exploding, although solid fuels such as galsite 27 were more storable than their liquid counterparts, they were disfavored for military JATO as they provided less immediate thrust, and did not have the versatility of being turned on and off midair. Parsons tried to resolve GALCITE-27's stability issue with GALCITE-46, which replaced the former's ammonium nitrate with guanidine nitrate. Gwi- guanidine nit- Moving along. To avoid the problems seen with ammonium nitrate, he had galcite-46 cooled, then he heated prior to testing. When it failed the test, he realized that the fuels binding black powder, rather than the oxidizers, had resulted in their instability. And in June that year, the idea of using liquid asphalt as an... App- That's a thing? idea of using liquid asphalt as an appropriate binding agent with potassium... Potassium perchlorate, perchlorate, as oxidizer. Molina recounted that Parsons was inspired to use asphalt by the ancient incendiary weapon, Greek fire. In ninth, in a 1982 talk for the International Association of Astronomical Artists, Captain Baushe stated the Parsons experience that Parsons experienced an epiphany after watching workers using molten asphalt to fix tiles onto a roof. Known as Galsite 53, this fuel provided significantly more stable, proved to be, sorry, this fuel proved to be significantly more stable than the group's earlier concoctions. Fulfilling Parsons' aim of creating a restricted burn rocket fuel inside a castable container and providing a thrust 427% more powerful than that of Galsite 27 This set a precedent which, according to his biographer, John Carter, changed the future of rocketry technology. The thermoplastic asphalt casting was durable in all climates allowing for mass production and indefinite storage and transforming solid fuel agents into a safe and viable form of rocket propulsion. Plasticized variants of Parsons solid fuel design invented by JPL's Charles Bartley were later used by NASA in space shuttle rocket, sorry, it, by nasa in space shuttle solid rocket boosters and by the strategic air command in polaris poseidon and minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles foundation of jpl and leading the agape lodge 1942 to 1944 aerojet's first two contracts were from the U.S. Navy, the Bureau of Aeronautics requested a solid-fuel JATO and Wilbur Wright Field requested a liquid-fuel unit. The Air Corps had requested 2,000 JATOs from Aerojet by late 1943, committing committing $256,000 towards Parsons Solid Fuel Type. Despite this drastically increased turnover, the company continued to operate informally and remained intertwined with the Gaussite project. Caltech astronomer Fritz Zwicky was brought in as head of the company's research department. Haley replaced von Karman as Aerojet chairman and imposed payroll cuts instead of reducing JATO output. The alternative was to cut staff numbers while maintaining more generous salaries. But Haley's priorities was Aerojet's contribution to the war effort. Company heads, including Parsons, were exempted from this austerity, drawing the ire of many personnel. Parsons' newfound credentials and financial security gave him the opportunity to travel more widely throughout the U.S., as an ambassador for Aerojet, meeting with other rocket enthusiasts. In New York, he met with Carl Germer, the head of the OTO in North America and in Washington, DC. He met poet laureate Joseph Oslander, donating some of Crowley's poetry books to the Library of Congress. Yep, that's right, Crowley's in the Library of Congress. Deal with that, Christians. He also became a regular at the Manana Literary Society, which met in Laurel Canyon at the home of Parson's friend, Robert A. Henlin. Henlin? Heinlein, Heinlein? And included science fiction writers, including Cleve Cartmill, Jack Williamson, and Anthony Boucher. Among Parson's favorite works of fiction was Williamson's Darker Than You Think. A novel a novel is that pronounced a novelette? That's not how you spell novella, right? That can't be how you spell novella. That's novelette. I'm going with novelette. God, do I not know how to spell that word? Novelette published in the fantasy magazine Unknown in nineteen forty, which inspired his later occult workings. Boucher used Parson as a partial basis for the character of Hugo Chantrell in his murder mystery, Rocket to the Morgue. 1942. Helen went away for a period in June 1941, during which Parsons, encouraged to do so by the sexually permissive attitude of the OTO, began a sexual relationship with her 17-year-old sister, Sarah. I know, guys, it's creepy, but back then everyone was banging teenagers. Also, I'm not sure what this age of consent is at this point. Still, it's her sister, 17, it's creepy, it's weird. We're getting into the creep stuff now. Upon Helen's return, Sarah asserted that she was Parsons' new wife, and Parsons himself admitted that he found Sarah more sexually attractive than Helen. Conflicted in her feelings, Helen sought comfort in... In Smith and began a relationship with him that lasted. I wish they had the full name there cuz cuz I know we talked about him earlier but I don't remember which guy he is because Smith is, is the most unmemorable name but we did talk we mentioned him earlier I forget he involved in dilemma somehow but anyways Helen sought comfort in Smith and began a relationship with him that lasted for the rest of his life the four remained friends Sounds like a quadruple to me. The two couples, along with a number of other Thelemites, some of whom with their children, moved to 1003 South Orange Grove Boulevard, an American craftsman-style mansion. They all contributed to the rent of $100 a month. That hurts to read. And lived... And... (sighs) They all contributed to, to the rent, $100 a month, and lived communally in what replaced Winona Boulevard as the new base of the Agape Lodge, maintaining an allotment and slaughtering their own livestock for meat, as well as blood rituals, of course. Parsons, by the way, it does say blood rituals, but I did add the of course. Parsons decorated his new room with a copy of Steel, S- Steel Revealing, a statue of Pan, and his collection of swords and daggers. He converted the garage and laundry room into a chemical laboratory and often held science fiction discussions, meetings in the kitchen, and entertained the children with hunts for fairies in the 25-acre garden. $100 a month. $100 a month. Can you believe? Inflation is a motherfucker. Motherfucker. Although there were arguments among the commune members, Parsons remained dedicated to the He gave almost all of his salary to the OTO, while actively seeking out new members, including foremen, and financially supported Crowley in London through Germer. Parsons' enthusiasm for the lodge quickly began to impact on his professional life. He frequently appeared at Aerojet hungover and sleep-deprived from late nights of lodge activities and invited many of his colleagues to them, drawing the ire of staff who previously tolerated Parsons' occultism as harmless eccentricity. Known to von Karman as Delightful Screwball! No, that's not the right voice. Delightful Screwball! I'm sticking with the Italian. Delightful Screwball! He was frequently observed reciting Crowley's poem him to pan in an ecstatic manner compared to the preachings of Billy Graham during rocket tests and on requests at parties to their great amusement. I wish I knew that this motherfucker's out here reading poetry to launch a rocket. They disapproved of his hesitancy to separate his vocations. Parsons became more rigorously engaged in Aerojet's day-to-day business in an effort to resolve his... Weariness. The, I'm sorry, in an effort to resolve this wariness. But the Agape Lodge soon came under investigation by both the Pasadena Police Department and the FBI. Both had received allegations of a black magic cult involved in sexual orgies. One complaint was a 16 year old boy who said that he was raped by lodge members, while neighbors reported a ritual involving a naked pregnant woman jumping through fire. After Parsons explained that the lodge was simply an organization dedicated to religious and philosophical speculation, neither agency found evidence of illegal activity and came to the conclusion that the lodge constituted no threat to national security. Having been a long term evidence of illegal activity, having been a long term heavy user of user of alcohol and marijuana. Parsons now habitually used cocaine, amphetamines, peyote, mescaline, and opiates as well. He continued to have sexual relationships with multiple women, including McMurdy's fiancée, Claire. When Parsons paid for her to have an abortion, McMurdy was angered and their friendship broke down. You paid for my wife's abortion? You're making me look weak as a man! I should be paying for that abortion! Crowley and Germer wanted to see Smith removed as head of the Agape Lodge, believing that he had become a bad influence on its members. Parsons and Helen wrote to them to defend their mentor, but Germer ordered him to stand down. Parsons was appointed as the temporary head of the lodge. Some veteran lodge members disliked Parsons' influence, concerned that it encouraged excessive sexual polyandry and that was religiously detrimental. But his charismatic orations at lodge meetings assured his popularity among the majority of followers. Parsons soon created the Thelemite journal Oriflame, Oriflame, Not sure. In which he published his own poetry, but Crowley was unimpressed, particularly due to Parsons' description of drug use, and the project was she- soon shelved. Helen gave birth to Smith's son in April. The child was named Quinn Lonville Parsons. Smith and Helen left with Quinn for for a two-room cabin in Rainbow Valley in May. Concurrently in England, Crowley undertook an astrological analysis of Smith's birth chart and came to the conclusion that Smith was the incarnation of a god, greatly altering his estimation of him. Smith remained skeptical as Crowley's analysis was seemingly deliberately devised in Parsons' favor, encouraging Smith to step down. Encouraging Smith to step down from his role in the Agape Lodge, and instructing him to take meditative a meditative retreat. Refusing to take orders from Germer anymore, Smith resigned from the OTO, Parsons who remained sympathetic and friendly to Smith during the conflict and was weary of Crowley's appalling egotism Poor egotism, bad taste, bad judgment, and pedanticism ceased large activities and resigned as its head, but withdrew his resignation after receiving a pacifying letter from Crowley by mid nineteen forty three Aerojet was operating on a budget of six hundred and fifty thousand dollars the same year. Parsons and von Karman traveled to norfolk, norfolk, Virginia, Norfolk on the invitation of Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox to consult on a new JATO contract for the US Navy. Though JATOs were being mass-produced military applications, JATO-propelled aircraft could not keep up, with larger bomber planes taking off from long aircraft carrier runways, which made Aerojet's industry at risk of becoming defunct parsons demonstrated the efficiency of the newer jato to solve this issue by equipping grumman a grumman plane ta- who was naming shit back then by equipping a grumman plane with a solid fuel u- with solid fuel units it assisted takeoff from the uss charger was successful but produced smoke containing a noxious yellow colored residue the Navy guaranteed Parsons a contract on the condition that this residue was removed. This led to the invention of Aeroplex, a technology for smokeless vapor trails, developed at Aerojet by Parsons. As the U.S. became aware that the Nazi Germany was developing the V-2 rocket, the military following recommendations from von Karman based on research using British intelligence, Placed a renewed impetus on its own rocket research, reinstating Quan to the Galcite project. Oh, way to go. Yeah, stop being racist for a minute. Probably still racist, but you know, just not being racist to that guy. They were probably still racist to him, but you know, like, just the mean way. They gave the group a $3 million grant to develop rocket-based weapons, and the group was extended and renamed the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. The names... are, Are the names getting less creative? I'm not sure. By this point, you'd think people who smoke weed would come up with better names. By this point, the Navy were ordering 20,000 jatos a month from Aerojet. In December 1944, Haley negotiated for the company to sell 51% of its stock to the General Tire and Rubber Company to cope with the increased demand. Aerojet's Caltech-linked employees, including Zwicky, Molina, and Summerfield, would only agree to the sale on the condition that Parsons and Foreman were removed from the company, viewing their occult activities as dis. as disreputable jpl historian eric m conway also attributes parsons expulsion to more practical concerns he still wanted to work in the same way as he'd done in his backyard instinctive and without regard for safety parsons and foreman were unfazed informing Haley of their prediction that the rocket industry would become obsolete in the post-war age, seeing more financial incentive in starting a chain of laundromats. Haley persuaded them to sell their stock, resulting in Parsons leaving the company with $11,000, which was a nice chunk of change back then. With this money, he he bought the lease to the 1003. Should I be pronouncing that 1003? I don't know. Which had become known as the Parsonage after him. Now wait till you hear the name of this next part. It's juicy. Elron Hubbard and the Babylon Working, 1945 to 1946. Now disassociated from JPL and Narrowjet, Parsons and Foreman founded the Ad Astra Engineering Company under which Parsons founded the Chemical Manufacturing Vulcan Powder Company. Ad Astra was subject to an FBI investigation under suspicion of espionage when security agents from the Manhattan Project discovered that Parsons and Foreman had procured a chemical used in a top-secret project for a material known as X-Metal. That is the coolest thing I've ever read. But they were later acquitted of any wrongdoing and X-Metal remains a mystery. No, I'm kidding. Parsons continued to financially support Smith and Helen, although he asked for a divorce from her and ignored Crowley's commands by welcoming Smith back to the Parsonage when his retreat was finished. Parsons continued to hold OTO activities at the Parsonage but began renting rooms at the house to non-thelemites, including journalist Neeson Himmel, Manhattan Project physicist Robert Cornog and science fiction artist Louis Goldstone. Parsons attracted controversy in Pasadena for his preferred clientele. As Parsonage resident Alva Rogers recalled, in the ads placed in the local paper, Jack specified that only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types need apply for rooms. Any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. Science fiction writer and U.S. Navy officer L. Ron Hubbard soon moved into the Parsonage. He and Parsons became close friends. Parsons wrote to Crowley that although Hubbard had no no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce he is... In direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met, and, and is in complete accord with our own principles. Parsons and Sarah were in an open relationship. Encouraged by OTO's polyandrous sexual ethics, she became enamored with Hubbard. Parsons, despite attempting to repress his passion, became intensely jealous. Motivated to find a new partner through occult means, Parsons began to devote his energies to conducting black magic, causing concern among fellow OTO members who believed that if who believed that it was invoking troublesome spirits into the parsonage, Jane Wolf wrote to Crowley that "Our own Jack is enamored with witchcraft. The humphrey the Humford voodoo." from the start he always wanted to evoke something no matter what i am inclined to think as long as he get as long as he got a result he told the residents that he was imbuing statues in the house with magical energy in order to sell them to fellow occultists parson's reported paranormal events in the house resulting from the rituals including poltergeist activities sightings of orbs ghostly apparitions and al- alchemical sylphic effect on the weather I don't know what that word means and disembodied voices Pendle suggested that Parsons was particularly susceptible to these interpretations and attributed the voices to a prank by Hubbard and Sarah one ritual allegedly brought screaming banshees to the windows of Parsonage, an incident that disturbed Foreman for the rest of his life in December 1945, Parsons began a series of rituals based on the... I should know how to pronounce this. enochian magic, during which he masturbated onto magical tablets, accompanied by Sergei Prokofiev, second violin concert, accompanied by... Sergei prokiv never mind, describing his magical operation as the Babylon working, he hoped to bring about the incarnation of the Thelemite goddess Babylon, not spelled like the city, onto earth. He allowed Hubbard to take part as his scribe, believing that he, ha- he was particularly sensitive to detecting magical phenomena, and Hubbard just like watching people jack off. As described by Richard Metzger, Parsons jerked off in the name of spiritual advancement, while Hubbard scanned the astral plane for signs and visions. Their final ritual took place in the Mojave Desert in late February 1946, during which Parsons abruptly decided that his undertaking was complete. On returning to the parsonage, he discovered Marjorie Cameron, an unemployed illustrator and former Navy WAVE, WAVE, I don't know what that stands for, had come to visit, believing her to be the elemental woman and manifestation of Babylon that he had invoked. In early March, Parsons began performing sex magic rituals with Cameron, who acted as his Scarlet Woman, while Hubbard contained in partic- continued to participate as the... The what? am Am...am...nuances? What? Unlike the rest of the household, Cameron knew nothing at first of Parsons' magical intentions. I didn't know anything about the O.T.O., I didn't know that they had invoked me. I didn't know anything, but the whole house knew it. Everybody was watching to see what was going on. Despite this ignorance and her skepticism about Parsons' magic, Cameron reported her sightings of a UFO to Parsons, who secretly recorded the sighting as a materialization of Babylon. Inspired by Crowley's novel, Moonchild, Parsons and Hubbard aimed to magically fertilize a magical child through immaculate conception, which began when born to a woman somewhere on earth nine months following the working's completion would become the Thelemic Messiah embodying Babylon. To quote Metzger, the purpose of the Babylon working was a daring attempt to shatter the boundaries of space and time, facilitating, according to Parsons, the emergence of thelemas. Aeons of Horus. When Cameron departed for a trip to New York, Parsons retreated to the desert, where he believed that a preternatural entity, psychographically providing him with Liber 49, which represented a fourth part of Crowley's The Book of the Law, the primary sacred text of Thelema, as well as part of a new sacred text he called The Book of Babylon. Crowley was bewildered and concerned by the endeavor, complaining to Germer of being fairly fr—fairly fran- frantic when I contemplated the idiocy of these louts. Believing the Babylon on working was accomplished, Parsons sold the parsonage to developers for $25,000. You've got to be shitting me. Under the condition that he and Cameron could continue to live in the coach house. He appointed Roy Lethingwell to head the agape lodge which would now have to meet elsewhere for its rituals kind of a dick move really parsons co-founded a, co- a company called allied enterprises with hubbard and sarah into which parsons invested his life savings of twenty thousand two hundred i'm sorry twenty thousand nine hundred and seventy dollars Hubbard suggested that with this money, they travel to Miami to purchase three yachts, which they would then sail through the Panama Canal to the West Coast, where they could sell them for a profit. Parsons agreed, but many of his, thre- many of his friends thought it was a bad idea. Hubbard had secretly requested permission from the U.S. Navy to sail to China and South and Central America on a mission to collect Writing materials. His real plans were for a world cruise. Left flat broke by his defrauding, Parsons was incensed when he discovered that Hubbard and Sarah had left for Miami with $10,000 of the money. He suspected a scam, but was placated by a telephone call from Hubbard and agreed to remain in business partner. When Crowley, in a telegram to Germer, dismissed Parsons as a weak fool and victim to Hubbard and Sarah's obvious confidence trick, Parsons changed his mind, flew to Miami, and placed temporary injunctions and restraining orders on them. Upon tracking them down to a harbor in County Causeway, Parsons discovered that the couple had purchased three yachts as planned. They tried to flee aboard one, but hit a squall and were forced to return to port. Parsons was convinced that he had brought them to shore through a lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, containing an astrological geomantic invocation of Bartzel Bell, a vengeful spirit of Mars. Allied Enterprises was dissolved, and in a court settlement, settlement. Hubbard was required to promise to reimburse Parsons. Parsons was discouraged from taking... Further actions by Sarah, who threatened to report him for statutory rape since their sexual relationship took place when she was under California's age of consent, 18. Oh, wow, no, I was was wrong. California had a curve in the the 30s. Damn, good for you, California. Parsons was ultimately compensated with only $2,900. Hubbard, already married to Margaret Grubb, Bigamously married Sarah and went to found Dianetics and Scientology. The Sunday Times published an article about Hubbard's involvement with the OTO and Parsons' occult activities in December 1969. In response, in response the Church of Scientology released an unsubstantiated press statement which said that Hubbard had been sent in as an undercover agent by the U.S. Navy to intercept and destroy Parsons' black magic cult and save Sarah from its influence. The church also stated that Robert A. Heinlein was the clandestine Navy operative who sent in, air quotes, Hubbard to undertake this operation. Returning to California, Parsons completed the sale of the parsonage, which was then demolished and resigned from OTO. He wrote his letter to Crowley that he did not believe that as an autocratic organization, the OTO constitutes a true and proper medium for the expression, for the expression and attainment of the lemma. He said to the Pope of the Loss of FBI clearance, red scare, Marxist and espionage accusations, and acquittal, 1946 to 1952. Parsons was employed by North American Aviation at Inglewood, where he worked at the the Navajo Missile Program. He and Cameron moved into a house in the Manhattan Beach, where he instructed her in occultism and esotericism. When Cameron developed catalepsy, Parsons referred her to Sylvan Muldoon's books on astral projection. I don't know what catalepsy is, by the way. Suggesting that she could manipulate her seizures, oh it causes seizures, to accomplish it. They were married on October 19th, 1946, four days after his divorce from Helen was finalized, with Foreman as their witness. Parsons continued to be seen as a specialist in rocketry. He acted as an expert consultant in numerous industrial tribunals and police and army ordinance investigations regarding explosions. In May 1947, Parsons gave a talk at the Pacific Rocket Society, which also has no Wikipedia page, in which he predicted that rockets would take humans to the moon. Although he had become distant from the now largely defunct OTO, and had sold humans, (laughs) sorry, accidentally jumped between lines there, I'm going to leave it in it's kind, of, it's kind of funny, and had sold much of his Crowleyan library. He continued to correspond with Crowley until the latter's death in December 1947. At the emergence of the Cold War, a red scare developed in the U.S. As the Congressional House of Un-American Activities began investigating and obstructing the careers of people with perceived communist sympathies, Many of Parsons' former colleagues lost their security clearances and jobs as a result, and eventually the FBI stripped Parsons of his clearance because of his subversive character, including his involvement in and advocacy of sexual perversions in the OTO. He speculated in June 1949, letter to Germer, that his clearance was revoked in response to his public dissemination of Crowley's Liber Oz in 1941, a 1941 tract summarizing the individualist moral principles of the dilemma. Declassified FBI documents later revealed that the FBI's primary concern was Parsons' former connections to the Marxist at Caltech and his membership of the also subversive ACLU. So that's why people accuse them of being communist. I'm not gonna lie to you. As someone who's looked into the ACLU and been like, mostly what they do is defend the Constitution, I'm always confused with the fact that people associate them with communists. But this is apparently why. I've been wondering about that for years. When they interviewed Parsons, he denied communist sympathies, but informed them of Sidney Weinbaum's extreme communist views. Way to be a snitch, Parsons. And Frank Molina's involvement in Weinbaum's communist cell at Caltech which resulted in Weinbaum's arrest for perjury, since he had lied under oath by denying any involvement. Molina's security clearance was withdrawn as well. In reactions to this hostile treatment, Parsons sought work in the rocket industry abroad. He sought advice to do so in correspondence with von Karman, whose advice he followed by enrolling in an evening course in advanced mathematics at USC to bolster his employability in the field. But again, he neglected attendance and failed the course. Parsons again resorted to bootlegging nitroglycerin for money and managed to earn a wage as a car mechanic, a manual laborer at a gas station, and a hospital orderly. For two years, he was also faculty member at the USC Department of Pharmacology. Relations between Parsons and Cameron became strained. They agreed to a temporary separation, and she moved to Mexico to join an artist commune in San Miguel de, de Allende. Allende. Oh, I never took Spanish. De Allende. Uh, unable to pursue his scientific career without his wife, And devoid of friendship, Parson decided to return to occultism and embark on a sexually based magical operation with prostitutes. He was intent informally following the ritualistic practices of Thelemite organization, the AA, on performing the crossing of the abyss, attaining union with the universal consciousness of all or all as is understood in the context of the great work and becoming the master of the temple following his a- apparent success in doing so parson's recounted having an out of body experience invoked by babylon who following his apparent success in doing so parson's recounted blah, 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 blah. following his apparent success in doing so parson's recounted having an out of body experience invoked by babylon who astrally transported him to the biblical city of Chorazin? Chorazin? Who knows? An experience he referred to as Black Pilgrimage. Accompanying Parsons' Oath of the Abyss was his own Oath of the Antichrist, which was witnessed by Wilfred Talbot Smith. In his oath, Parsons professed to embody an entity named Beleriand Armillus... Al-Digital, the Antichrist, who am come to fulfill the law of the beast, 666 Alistair Crowley. Viewing these oaths as a completion of the Babylon work, Parsons wrote an Iliast autobiography titled Analysis by a Master of the Temple, and an occult text titled The Book of Antichrist. In later works, Parsons' writing as Beleriand prophesized that within nine years, Babylon would manifest on earth and supersede the dominance of the Abrahamic religions. We call it evangelicalism. Haha, <laughs> just a joke. But seriously, evangelicals, you're Satanists. During this period, Parsons also wrote an essay on his individualist philosophy and politics, which he described as standing for liberalism and liberals' principles. Titled, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, in which he condemned authoritarianism, censorship, corruption, anti-sexualism, and racism, he saw as prevalent in American society. None of these works were discussed... None of these works were published in his lifetime. Through through Heinlein, Parsons received a visit from writer L. Sprague de Camp, with whom he referred to Parsons as an authentic mad genius if I ever met one, and based the character Courtney James on him in his time travel story, A Gun for Dinosaur. A Gun for a Dinosaur? I wonder if there's a, an interesting title. Which was published in 1956. Parsons was also visited by Jane Wolfe, who successfully appealed for him to rejoin the dilapidated OTO. He entered a brief relationship with an Irish woman named Gladys Gohan, They moved to a house in Redondo Beach, a building known by them as the Concrete Castle. Cameron returned to Redondo Beach from San Miguel de Alandia. I wonder if I pronounced that correctly this time. And violently argued with Parsons upon discovering his infidelity. Before she again left for Mexico, Parsons responded by initiating divorce proceedings against her on the grounds of extreme cruelty. Parsons testified to a closed federal court that the moral philosophy of the was both anti-fascist and anti-communist, emphasizing his beliefs in individualism. This, along with references from his scientific colleagues, resulted in his security clearance being reinstated by the Industrial Employment Review Board, which review, which, bleh, which ruled that there was insufficient evidence that he had ever had communist sympathies. This allowed Parsons to obtain a a contract in designing and constructing a chemical plant for the Hughes Aircraft Company in Culver City. Von Karman put Parsons in touch with Herbert T. Rosenfeld, no Wikipedia page, president of the Southern California chapter of the American Technion Society, a Zionist group dedicated supporting the newly created state of israel rosenfeld offered parsons a job with the israeli rocket program and hired him to produce technical reports for them in november 1950 as the red scare intensified parsons decided to migrate to israel to pursue rosenfeld's offer but a huge a huge secretary whom parsons had asked to type up a portfolio of technical documents, reported him to the FBI. She accused Parsons of espionage and attempting theft of classified company documents on the basis of some of the reports he had sought to submit to the Technion Society. So stealing's not cool, even when you do it for Israel. Parsons was immediately fired from Hughes. The FBI investigated the complaint and were suspicious that Parsons was spying for the Israeli government. Parsons denied the allegations. When interrogated, he insisted that his intentions were peaceful and that he had suffered an error in judgment, procuring the documents. Some of Parsons' scientific colleagues rallied to his defense. But the case against him worsened when the FBI investigated Rosenfeld for being linked to Soviet agents. And more accounts on his occult and sexually permissive activities at Parsonage came to light. In October 1951, the U.S. attorney decided that because the contents of the report did not constitute state secrets, Parsons was not guilty of espionage. The review board still considered Parsons a liability because of his historical Marxist affiliations and investigation by the FBI. And in January 1952, they permanently reinstated their ban on his working for classified projects, effectively effectively excuse me, prohibiting him from working in rocketry. Also, I love that it's called Rocketry. To make a living he found the part he founded the Parsons Chemical Manufacturing Company, which was based in North Hollywood, and created pyrotechnics and explosives such as fogs, and fog effects and imitation gunshot wounds for the film industry. He also returned to chemical manufacturing at the Burmite Powder Company in Saugus. Which, by the way, sounds like a lovecraft monster, by the way. Saugus? Think about it. Parsons reconciled with Cameron, and they resumed their relationship and moved into a former coach house on Orange Grove Boulevard. Parsons converted its large first-floor laundry room into a home laboratory to work on his chemical and pyrotechnic projects and homebrew absinthe and stockpile his materials. They let out the upstairs bedrooms and began holding parties that were attended by largely bohemian and members of the Beat Generation, along with old friends including Foreman, Molina, and Cornog. I don't remember reading about Cornog before, but, you know, great name. They also congregated at the home of Andrew Haley, who lived in the, on the same street Though Parsons in his mid-thirties was a pre-war relic to the younger attendees, the raucous socials often lasted until dawn and frequently attracted police attention. Parsons also founded a new Thelemite group known as the Witchcraft, whose beliefs revolved around a simplified version of Crowley's, Thelema and Parsons' own Babylon prophecies. He offered a course in its teachings for a $10 fee, which included a new Thelemic belief system called the Gnosis, a version of Christian Gnosticism with Sophia as its godhead and the Christian god as its demiurge. He also collaborated with Cameron on Songs for the Witch Woman, a collection of poems which she illustrated that was published in 2014. Death, 1952. Parsons and Cameron decided to travel to Mexico for a few months, both for a vacation and for Parsons to take up a job opportunity, establishing an explosives factory for the Mexican government. They hoped this would facilitate a move to Israel, where they could start a family, and where Parsons could bypass the U.S government to, rec- to recommence his rocketry career. He also particularly distur- he was also particularly disturbed by the presence of the FBI, convinced they were spying on him. How delightful. On June 17th, 1952, a day before their planned departure, Parsons received a rush order of explosives for a film set and began to work on it in his home laboratory. An explosion destroyed the lower part of the building, during which Parsons sustained mortal wounds. His right forearm was amputated, His legs and left arm were broken, and a hole was torn in the right side of his face. Despite these critical injuries, Parsons was found conscious by the upstairs lodgers. He tried to communicate with the arriving ambulance workers who rushed him to the Huntington Memorial Hospital, where he was declared dead approximately 37 minutes after the explosion. When his mother Ruth learned of his death, she immediately took a fatal overdose of barbiturates. Pasadena Police Department criminologist Don Harding led the official investigation. He concluded that Parsons had been mixing fulminate of mercury, fulminate, excuse me, in a coffee can when he dropped it on the floor, causing the initial explosion, which worsened when it came into contact with other chemicals in the room. Foreman considered this likely, stating that Parsons often had sweaty hands. It could easily have dropped the can. Some of Parsons' colleagues rejected this explanation, saying that he was very attentive about safety, which earlier we read was not true. Two colleagues from the Burmite Powder Company described Parsons' work habits as scrupulously neat and exceptionally cautious. The latter statement, from the chemical engineer George santamires Santa, sorry Santames insisted that the explosion must have come from beneath the floorboards implying an organized plot to kill Parsons Harding accepted that these inconsistencies were incongruous but described the manner in which Parsons had stored his chemicals as criminally negligent and noted that Parsons had previously been investigated by the police for illegally storing chemicals at the parsonage he also found morphine filled syringe at the scene suggesting that parsons was narcotized the police saw sufficient evidence saw sufficient evidence to continue the investigation and close the case. the police saw the insufficient evidence to continue the investigation and close the case as an accidental death Both Wolf Wolf and Smith suggested that Parsons' death had been suicide, stating that he had suffered from depression for some time. Others theorized that the explosion was an assassination planned by Howard Hughes in response to Parsons' suspected theft of Hughes Aircraft Company documents. Cameron became convinced that Parsons had been murdered either by police officers seeking revenge for his role in the conviction of Earl Kennett, or by anti-Zionists opposed to his work for Israel. One of Cameron's friends, the artist Renate Drux, later stated her beliefs that Parsons had died in a rite designed to create a homunculus. His death has never been definitively explained. The immediate aftermath of the explosion attracted the interest of the U.S. media, making headlines news in Los Angeles Times. These initial reports focused on Parsons' prominence in rocketry, but neglected to mention his occult interests. When asked for comment, Aerojet Secretary-Treasurer T.E. Bihan said that Parsons liked to wander, but he was one of the top men in the field. Within a few days, journalists had discovered his involvement in Thelema and emphasized this in their reports. A private prayer service was held for Parsons at the funeral home where his body was cremated. Cameron scattered his ashes in the Mojave Desert before burning most of his possessions. She later tried to perform astral projection to commune with him. The OTO also had a memorial service with attendees including Helen and Sarah at which Smith led the Gnostic mass. And thus ended the life of Jack Parsons. His obituary read as follows. Parsons had witnessed the blinding overnight success achieved by the government by terror totalitarianism of Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany. He had the foresight to see that the United States of America, once armed with the new powers of total destruction and surveillance that were sure to follow the swelling flood of new technologies, had the potential to become even more repressive unless its founding principles of individual liberty were religiously preserved and its leaders held accountable to them. Two of the keys to, addressing, to redressing the balance were the freedom of women and an end to the state control of individual sexual expression. He knew that these potent forces, embodied as they are in a majority of the world's population, have the power, once unleashed, to change the world. This quote is from William Breeze, the Hi- Hem- Hymenus Beta, current Frater Superior of Ordo Templi Orientis. Oh wait, I'm sorry, that wasn't that wasn't his that wasn't his obituary. <clears throat> This is his obituary. My bad, that was a quote from one of his religious friends. I scrolled to, I picked out the obituary in in advance and accidentally scrolled to the wrong blue box. John, I'm going to leave that in. Fuck you. I mean, I love you. John W. Parsons, handsome 37-year-old rocket scientist killed Tuesday in a chemical explosion was one of the founders of a weird semi-religious cult that flourished here about 10 years ago. Old police reports yesterday pictured the former Caltech professor as a man who led a double existence, a down-to-earth explosive expert who dabbled in intellectual necromancy. Possibly, possibly he was trying to reconcile fundamental human urges with the inhuman, Buck Rogers' type of innovations that sprang from his test tubes. Parsons' obituary... In, the, in June 19th, 1952 edition of the Pasadena Independent. It was actually better than I had hoped it would be. But now let's quickly dip into what his religious beliefs actually were. What did the Church of Thelema actually believe in? Philosophy, religious beliefs. Parsons adhered to the occult philosophy of Thelema, which had been founded in 1904 by English occultist Alistair Crowley. Following a spiritual revelation that he had in Cairo, Egypt, when, according to Crowley's accounts, a spirit being known as Iwas, Ios, Aos, not sure, dictated to him the prophetic text known as the Book of the Law. Prior to becoming aware of the lemma, Crowley Parsons' interest in esotericism was developed through his reading of the Golden Bough a work in comparative mythology by Scottish social anthropologist James George Frazier. Parsons had also attended lectures on theos- theosophy by philosopher Jiddu Krishna Murti Mirt- Murti, not sure. With his first wife Helen, but disliked the belief system sentiment of the good and the true. During rocket tests, Parsons often recited Crowley's poem of Hymn to Pan, a good luck charm. He took to addressing Crowley as his most beloved father and signed off to him as thy son, John. In July 1945, Parsons gave a speech to the Agape Lodge in which he attempted to explain how he felt that the Book of the Law Could be made relevant to modern life. In his speech, he was subsequently published under the title of Doing Your Will. He examined the Thelemite concept of true will, writing that the mainspring of an individual in his creative will, this will is the sum of his tendencies, his destiny, his inner truth. It is one with the force that makes the birds sing, flowers bloom. As inevitable as gravity, as implicit as a bowel movement, it informs like atoms and men's and sun's. To the man who knows this will, there is no why, why not, no can or cannot, he is. There is no known force that can turn an apple into an alley cat. There is no known force that can turn a man from his will. This is the triumph of genius, that surviving centuries enlightens the world. This force burns in every man. In other words, a religion of a will to power. Parsons identified four obstacles that prevented humans from achieving and performing their true will, all of which he connected with fear. The fear of incompetence, the fear of the opinions of others, the fear of hurting others, the fear of insecurity. He insisted that these must be overcome, writing that the will must be freed of its fetters, The will must be freed of its feathers. The ruthless examination and destruction of taboos, complexes, frustrations, dislikes, fears, disgust, hostile to the will, is essential to progress. Though Parsons was a lifelong devotee to Thelema, he grew weary of and eventually left the Ordo Templi Orentis, the religious religious organization that began propagating Thelema under Crowley's leadership from from the 1910s, which Parsons viewed, despite the disagreement of Crowley himself, as excessively hierarchical, impending upon rigorous spiritual and philosophical practices of true will describing the O.T.O. as an excellent training school for adepts, but hardly an appropriate order for the manifestations of lemma. <laughs> Going against your own Pope there, buddy. In this sense, Parsons was described by Carter as an almost fundamentalist Thelemite who placed the Book of the Law's dogma above all other doctrine. In the decades following his death, Parsons was, was well-remembered among the Western esoteric community. His scientific recognition frequently amounted to a footnote. For instance, English Thelemite Kenneth Grant suggested that Parsons' Babylon working marked the start of the appearance of flying saucers in the sky, leading to the phenomenon known as Roswell UFO incident and Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. Cameron postulated that the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO incident was a spiritual reaction to Parsons', to Parsons death. In 1954, she, pro- she portrayed Babylon in America, Thelemite Kenneth Angers' short film, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. <laughs> Viewing this cinematic depiction of Thelemic ritual as aiding the literal... Invocation of Babylon begun by Parsons' work, Parsons' working, and later said that his book of Antichrist prophecies were fulfilled through the manifestation of Babylon in her person. In December 1958, JPL was integrated into the newly established Aeronautics and Space Administration, having built the Explorer 1 satellite that commenced America's space race with the Soviet Union. Aerojet was contracted by NASA to build the main engine of the Apollo Command Service Module and the Space Shuttle Orbital Maneuvering System. In a letter to Frank Molina, Von Karman ranked Parsons first in a list of figures he viewed as most important in modern rocketry and the foundation of the American space program. According to Richard Metzger, Werner von Braun, who was nicknamed the father of rocket science, once argued that Parsons was more worthy of this moniker. In October 1968, Molina, a pioneer in sounding rocketry, gave a speech at JPL in which he highlighted Parsons' contributions to the U.S. rocket project and lamented how it had come to be neglected crediting him for making key contributions to the development of storable propellants and a long-duration, solid propellant agents that play such an important role in American and European space technology. The same month, JPL had an open-access event to mark the 32nd anniversary of the Foundation, which featured a nativity scene of mannequins reconstructing the November 1936 photograph of the Gaussite group and erected a monument commemorating their first rocket test on Halloween 1936. Among the aerospace industry, JPL was nicknamed as standing for Jack Parsons Laboratory, or Jack Parsons Lives. The International Astronomical Union decided to name a crater on the far side of the moon, Parsons, after him in 19... 72. JPL later con- credited him for making a distinctive technical innovation that advanced early efforts in rocket engineering with aerospace journalist Craig Cavalt stating that the work of Parsons, Qu- oh God, I'm so sorry, Kwan, Quan. Kwan Quan Zusan, Z- I don't know, I'm sorry and Galsite Group planted the seeds for JPL to become a preeminent in space and rocketry. Many of Parsons' writings were post-osthumous. Published as Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword in 1989, a compilation co-edited by Cameron and O.T.O., leader Hymenus Beta, which incited resurgence of interest in Parson within occult and countercultural circles. For example, comic book artist and occultist Alan Moore noted Parsons as a creative influence in a 1998 interview with Clifford Meth. The Cameron Parsons Foundation was founded as an incorporated company in 2006 with the intention of conserving and promoting Parsons' writings and Cameron's artwork. In 2014, fulgur Isoterica, published songs for the witch woman a limited edition of poems by parsons illustrated by cameron released to coincidence with this centenary i'm sorry released to coincide with his centenary it wasn't a coincidence my bad An exhibition of the same name was held at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles. In 1999, Farrell House published the biography Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of of Jack Parsons by John Carter of Mars. No, just kidding. Who opened that Parsons had accomplished more in under five years of research than Robert H. Goddard had in his lifetime and said that his role in the development of rocket technology had been neglected by historians of science. Carter thought that Parsons' abilities and accomplishments as an occultist had been overestimated and exaggerated among Western es- esotericists, emphasizing his disowning by Crowley for participating in magic beyond his grade. Farrell House republished the work as a new edition in 2004, accompanied with an introduction by Robert Anton Wilson. Wilson believed that Parsons was the one single individual who contributed the most to rocket science, describing him as being very strange, very brilliant, very funny, and very tormented. And considering it noteworthy that that the day of Parsons' death was predicted beginning of the apocalypse advocated by Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Bible student movement. What? There's definitely more going on there than I'm... Okay, in 2005, Weidenfeld and Nicholson published Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons by George Pendle, who described Parsons as the shade Guevara of occultism. Pendle said that although Parsons would not live to see his dream of space travel come true, he was essential to making it a reality. Pendle considered that the cultural stigma attached to Parsons' occultism was the primary cause of his low public profile, noting that, like many scientific mavericks, Parsons was eventually discarded by the establishment once he had served his purpose. It was this unorthodox mindset... Creatively facilitated by his science fiction fandom and willingness to believe in magic's if, 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 efficiency, Pendle argued that allowed him to break scientific barriers previously thought to be indestructible. Commenting that Parsons saw that Parsons saw both space and magic as ways of exploring these new frontiers. One breaking free from Earth's literally and metaphysically. Elron Hubbard's role in Parsons' Agape Lodge, the insuring Yacht Scam, were explored in Russell Miller's 1987 Hubbard biography, Bare-Faced Messiah. Parsons' involvement in the Agape Lodge was also discussed by Martin P. Starr in his History of the American Thelemite Movement. The Unknown God, W.T. Smith, and The Thelemites, published by Chetan Press in 2003. The QI Book of the Dead in 2004, based on the BBC game show, included Parsons' obituary. Parsons' occult partnership with Hubbard was also mentioned, and Alex Gibney's 2015 documentary film Going Clear, Scientology, and The Prison of Belief, produced by HBO. Before his death, Parsons appeared in science fiction writer Anthony Boucher's murder mystery novel, Rocket to the Morgue, in 1942, under the guise of mad scientist character Hugo Chantrell. Another fictional character based on Parsons was Courtney James, a wealthy socialite who features in L. De, L. Sprague de Camp's 1956 short time travel story, A Gun for Dinosaur. In 2005, Pasadena Babylon, Pasadena Babylon a stage play about Parsons written by George D. Morgan and directed by Brian Brophy. Premiered at Caltech as a production by its theater arts group in 2010, the same year Cellar Door Publishing released Richard Carboneau and Rob Robin Simon Ings. Nin, nin, I gotta look about how to pronounce that. Graphic novel *The Marvel: A Biography of Jack Parsons*. They were suit. No, they weren't. Parsons mythology was incorporated into the narrative of David Lynch's mystery horror television series *Twin Peaks*. In 2014, AMC Network announced plans for a serial television dramatization of Parson's life. But in 2016, it was reported that the series will not be going forward. In 2017, the project was adopted as a web television series by CBS All Access. Strange Angel, produced by Mark Heyman, and starring Irish actor Jack Rayner as Parsons. Premiered June 2018 and ran for two seasons. In 2018, Parsons was featured in an episode of the Amazon series Lore. Parsons is the subject of musical tributes by John Johansson Fordlandia, 2008 Six Organs of Admittance, Parsons Blues 2012 The Claypool Linen Delirium South of Reality, 2019 and Luke Haynes and Peter Buck's Beat Poetry for Survivalists, 2020. This... Oh. Oh, yes, the Claypool linen Delirium, of course, is John Lennon's son. And Les Claypool. I could go into his patents, and I could talk some more about his politics, but I feel like I've covered everything... But I feel like I've covered the main things here from Jack Parsons. If you appreciate any of this information, remember that you can support Wikipedia. And I'm going to support them by telling you to give them money. Do it. Alright. Well, thank you for listening to this very unusual episode. I don't know if it's actually that unusual. Please feel free to leave your feedback at my Twitter, son of hippies. Please feel free to email the program at my e- at its email address. Hold on, what is my email address? It should be Ruben Un- Oh, yes. Please feel free to email me any responses at RubenUncut at gmail.com. And you can also always go to Anchor and leave me a voicemail, which could be hilarious. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed whatever the hell this was.